Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. We are talking about the God questions, questions God asked in Scripture. And so far we've found that there are an abundance of questions God asks. We don't normally think of God asking questions. We think of Him making statements and issuing commands. But there are a lot of places in Scripture where God asks questions. And today we're going to look at another of those questions God asks. It's found in the book of Job, chapter 1. Job chapter 1. So far, uh, all the questions we've looked at have come out of Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapters 3 and chapters 14. But today, we're going to look at uh, Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading with verse number 1 of Job, the first chapter. Job 1.1 says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He also had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as a result of worshiping you this morning, getting our hearts prepared for your word, and as a result of hearing and responding to your word this morning, I pray that across this congregation, you'd be able to find people whose faithfulness is so great and strong that if you had a conversation with Satan today, you'd be calling out some of the names of people here and saying to Satan, have you considered my servant? And then you'd name some folks here. Lord, you are a God who invites us into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's where it starts. But then you call us to faithfulness. And Job was the Old Testament example of faithfulness. He was the model before all the people of his day of faithfulness. 
And today we look at your question about him, a question you ask Satan of all creatures. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to hear your word this morning about how each of us are called to and responsible for faithfulness to you in our daily lives. This is my prayer to you, Lord, for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The Old Testament book of Job tells the story of this poor soul whose name was Job, who lived in the far east uh, city of Uz, the land of Uz. And he was a man who was faithful to God. He was faithful in, in every possible way. And in his faithfulness, God blessed him. In fact, up to till, up till the point in Job's life that we read about in, in chapter 1, and, and we don't know exactly how old Job was, but I, as I read it, I, I'm thinking that this man is uh, a man who's up in years. And up to this point, he's been faithful to God. That's all he's ever known is being faithful to God. And in Job's mind, as a result of his faithfulness, God has blessed him. He's blessed him with a lot of land, and he's blessed him with seven sons and three daughters. Ten, which was uh, in those days a symbol of a perfect family. He had a great marriage with his wife. He had uh, thousands of flocks of different animals, and he had employees under his uh, supervision. And everywhere he looked, Job must have thought, wow, it really pays off to be faithful to God. My faithfulness has resulted in blessing. In fact, that was the general opinion of the people of his day. That if you are faithful to God, you will always have good things happen to you. And when bad things happen to people, they only happen to people who are unfaithful to God. That was their belief. Only good things happen to the faithful. Only bad things happen to the unfaithful. And so if any time anything ever happened that was bad to someone, even someone who appeared to be religious, the immediate conclusion in everybody's mind was, well, that that lady must have been a terrible person. We must have been fooled by her. In reality, she was terrible. Or in reality, he must have been a terrible person, must have done something really wrong because something bad had happened to that person. The whole story of Job begins with his faithfulness and begins with this opinion among all the religious people of his day that good things come and only good things come to the faithful. Well, the story starts out describing Job, but then it it quickly reverts to, to an angel's conference. We're not told where this conference was held. Most people, when we read it, because of the fact that God is there and because of the fact that angels are there and because of the fact that Satan is there and God, seemingly surprised, asks him, where in the world you come from? As if you're not supposed to be here. Most people conclude that the conference must have been held in heaven, but the text doesn't say that. We don't know where this conference was held. What we are told is that it was a conference whose purpose was for the angels to present themselves before God. And I'm assuming, uh, accept either his praise or his constructive criticism. And so they appeared before God. And as God looked over the congregation of angels, he saw Satan. 
Where in the world have you come from? Well, I've been roaming to and from the earth, going back, forth and back, and uh, ended up here. God's first question, where have you come from? But that's not the question we're focusing on this morning. Then God said, well, since you've been roaming to and forth in, in, the, in the world, on the earth, have you considered my servant Job? What a great question that is. Have you considered my servant Job? God goes on to describe Job. Now, keep in mind, this is God describing Job. He says, there's nobody on earth like this man. He loves God. He shuns evil. He does what is right. Even with regard to his children, he has raised them up to be godly children. And in the event that any of them ever even hinted at sinning, Job was right there to lead them, correcting them in the right way. And Satan's response to God was, well, sure, Job is faithful to you. Why wouldn't he be faithful to you? You have done nothing but bless him. You've done nothing but protect him. But he says, as sure as you lift your protection from Job and you allow bad things to happen to Job, in that day, Job will curse you to your face. And then a surprising thing happens. God makes a deal with the devil. He makes a deal with Satan. He says, all right, I will let you uh, burden him. I will let you have access to him, but you can't touch him. You can do anything you want to, to anything that is of Job, but you cannot touch Job. And so Satan left from the presence of the Lord. And you've read this story. You know that all of Job's 10 children were killed in a tornado. You know that most of his flocks were wiped away either by storms, natural disasters, or by uh, terrorist raiders who came through and wiped them out. You know that most of his servants were killed, except for those few who escaped and were able to come back to Job and tell him what had happened in the respective areas of Job's property, the calamities that had happened. And yet the Bible says that Job... Uh, tore his clothes, which was a sign of humility and mourning in that day, and he sat in a pile of ashes, and he said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, the Scripture says, Job did not sin in his heart, nor did he curse God. Well, he's a better man than I am. The Bible says then that there was a second conference in heaven. And once again, just like the first conference, Satan shows up, even though he, by all rights, should not have been there. God looks at him, where have you come from? And Satan's answer is the same as it was the first time. Well, I've been roaming the earth, going to and fro on the earth. I ended up here. And again, God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody on earth like him. He uh, loves God. He shuns evil. He does everything that's right. He even raises his children to do right. And he refuses to turn his back on me, even though you have taunted him without any reason. And Satan's response to God was, well, duh. I mean, you're still protecting him. You've let me take away his children and his flocks and most of his servants, but you haven't let me touch him. Let me touch him and afflict him and you will see Job cursing you to your face. And then another surprising thing happens. God makes another deal with the devil. 
He makes a deal with Satan. He says, all right, I will let you touch him, but you cannot kill him. And so Satan left from the presence of God and the angels and he went down and he started afflicting Job's body with sores and disease to the point where when he was sitting in that heap of ashes, when his friends would come up and and see him uh, uh, until they got really close to him and heard his voice, they couldn't even recognize Job for the friend that they had known most of their lives. And yet in all of that, although Job argued And he debated for the next 37, 38 chapters. Job, the Bible says, never lost his faith in God, never cursed God, never even so much as hinted about abandoning his relationship with the Lord. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't know what the population of the earth was at the time of Job. I know that the book of Job is probably the oldest book uh, in terms of when it was written in all of the Bible. So Job is, is, uh, if he was a, a historical figure, this is something that happened many, many, many years ago. And I'm sure that the population in Job's time was a fraction of the population of the earth today, which is 7 billion people. But let's take a guess. Let's say that the population of the entire earth at the time of Job was about the population of the state of Georgia. Let's say it was about 10 million, not billion, 10 million people. Now that's a far cry from 7 billion, but even 10 million people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Job must have felt like had he known that of all the people on earth at that time, God in a conversation with Satan, singled him alone out. Not because he was handsome, not because he had a lot of money, not because he had great kids, but solely because of his faithfulness to God. How would you feel if among all the 7 billion people on earth, God had a conversation with Satan, and in that conversation, he starts talking about faithfulness, and he says, as a good example, Satan, let me uh, ask you to consider my servant, and he called out your name. Would he call out your name? That question, have you considered my servant, Job, is a question about faithfulness. It's a question about something that is so important that it was the only subject God brought up in this conversation with Satan. Let me tell you, faithfulness is of utmost importance to our God. Now, uh, along with this question and this this subject of faithfulness, I believe there are several uh, conclusions that we can make that come from this question and come from Job's story. The first one is maybe somewhat surprising, but here it is. God notices your faithfulness. God notices it. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan had considered Job, but long before Satan had considered Job, it is obvious that God had considered Job. About six years ago, there was a new family who came to our church and they had Uh, Three children, 
had three children, three stair-step children. One was in uh, elementary school, one was starting middle school, and the other one was starting high school. And they came to our church, and, and they visited for a while, and, and they ended up uh, joining our church. And there was another mother in our church who took a liking to these three children. And so whenever she could, she would kid around with these three kids, and she would joke with them, and she would uh, develop a relationship with them. And there were times when she would praise them when they did something good. And she would recognize them when, for example, they got an answer in Bible study or on Wednesday night disciple program when they got an answer correct. And they came to really like this mother in our church. After about, oh, probably six months, eight months after this family joined, the mother who had shown great attention to them received a card in the mail from the mother of these three children. It was a very simple card. You open it up and on the inside flap said this, your kindness toward my boys has not gone unnoticed. Thank you. And that's all she said. God also notices your faithfulness. And when we are faithful to God, our faithfulness does not go unnoticed. God notices it. You may think that what you're doing is small. You may think that nobody knows what you do. In fact, God likes it better if what you do is not known by anybody else. The one thing that God doesn't like when we are faithful is when we're faithful and we have to let somehow everybody else know about our faithfulness. God likes secrecy and faithfulness. He likes for us to be people who don't draw attention to ourselves, but we draw attention or deflect that attention up to the Lord. God notices our faithfulness. But let me draw a second conclusion. Not only is God noticing our faithfulness, but God is actually looking everywhere for faithful persons whom he can praise. Now, this might seem a little uh, surprising because what we normally hear about when we talk about God and God's relationship to praise is that God is worthy of our praise, is that God uh, deserves all of our praise, that we shouldn't uh, think highly of being praised, but we should desire only to praise God. And all of that is true. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God inhabits our praise when we worship Him and praise Him. When Matt in this service or Chris in the next service is leading us in worship and praising God, the Bible teaches us that when we truly worship, God inhabits that worship. He dwells in it. He longs to be a part of it. The Bible further teaches us that when we were created by God, He created us to worship Him. We are never more doing uh, more of what God wants us to do than when we are worshiping Him. We are designed for worship just like an automobile is designed to transport people from one point to the next. We're created for worship. And we hear that. We know that. That, that almost is second nature to us, although some things that become second nature become so second nature that we don't think about them enough to actually do them. But what is surprising is not only does God want our praise, it's not that he needs it, he just desires it, but God desires to praise us. 
God desires to compliment you. God desires not to be a bounty hunter looking to catch you doing something wrong. God is a patient, loving, uh, heavenly father who is, is hunting to find you doing something right, to catch you doing something right. He desires to praise you. And that's the reason why this question is more than a question. It's a compliment. How could it be otherwise? Have you considered my servant Job? I'm telling you, Satan, there's nobody on earth like him. He loves me and he hates evil, the very thing that I hate. And he's raised his family to love me and to hate evil, the very thing I hate. It's a, it's a tremendous compliment that God would raise Job's name in this conversation with Satan. Now, let me give you some examples, biblical examples of what I'm talking about, where God is looking everywhere for faithful persons to praise. Now, watch this. This is from Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 29 and 30. Now, listen up. It says the, God, This is God speaking. He says, The people of the land practice extortion and they commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the, fo- the foreigner, denying them justice. And then he says this in verse 30. Now, listen to this. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. What's he saying? I'm looking for somebody whose faithfulness I can praise. I'm looking for somebody. But he said, I found no one. That was Ezekiel chapter 22. Listen to Psalm 14, written by a totally different author says this, Psalm 14, beginning with verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. God is looking for people he can praise. God wants to notice you and praise you for your faithfulness to him. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 3. And of course, this involves Jesus, but it still, it still supports this point I'm making that God wants to praise. It says this, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heaven opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am so well pleased. And then we come back to Job chapters 1 and 2. And in two situations that that are almost identical to each other in these two different angelic conferences, God asks of Satan the same question. Both times the question serves not just as a question but as a compliment. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him who loves me and hates evil. There's no one on earth like him. And the text says he was the greatest man of all the people in the East, God notices your faithfulness and God is looking everywhere. He's looking at every nook and cranny of your life, not to find something wrong, but to find faithfulness that is worthy of being praised. God is looking for that. Now, there's another conclusion that I want to draw attention to, and this is this. Contrary to what Job's friends and Job up to this point thought. Faithfulness won't remove struggles, 
but it will help us in those struggles. You have found that to be true. If you've ever had a crisis in your life, especially one that's deep-seated, that has been very difficult to get over, maybe impossible to get over, you have probably wondered, why did God allow this to happen in my life? Why did God not reach in and rescue me? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. If you put all those together, you would think that he would just snatch me right out of my struggle, right out of my crisis, right out of my problem. And yet, in reality, you found that he did not do that. Faithfulness will not remove your struggles, but it will help you in your struggles. It'll help you in them. Cassie Bernal was one of the students who was murdered 11 years ago in April of 1999 at Columbine High School. When her funeral was held, some of her closest friends in preparation for the funeral pieced together a video about her life. It was a video testimony of her life. And on that video, several of the students testified, made statements concerning her, about her. There were these photographs of a young woman, a blonde-headed junior in high school, who students said was, had the very light of Christ shining out of her eyes. Here's what some of the students said. One student said, her eyes shine with Christ's light. Another student said this, Cassie was one of the strongest Christians I've ever known. Another friend said this, I, I knew that she was so willing to die for Christ if that's what it called for. Another one said this, I just thank God that when she went out, she went out someone who died, if that's what she had to do, died for the cause of Christ. She was faithful. That young junior in high school was faithful. Not only was she faithful privately, she was faithful publicly, not because she wanted to be recognized, but because she wanted to praise God. And her friends at school, when they saw her, one of the first things they thought about was not whether or not she was wearing $110 Nike shoes or whether or not she was wearing Abercrombie and Fitch uh, shirts or whether she had the latest fad in a dress or pants or whether her hair was cut with the latest salon fashion. No, when they saw her, the first thing they thought about was this is a girl who has, who has a relationship with the Lord and who lives that relationship. And her friends even said that about her. As the details of the tragedy started seeping out, what we found, and you remember this, what, what, we, what we learned was that the two shooters who committed that rampage on that high school that day in April 1999, they had pre-selected some of the students to be shot solely on the basis of the fact that they were known to be devout Christian students. And they had singled out those students. Now, the reason I bring that to your attention is this. If you have the idea that faithfulness will result in only God protecting you, only God blessing you, only God giving you a wealthy job, only God giving you totally obedient and responsible kids, only God giving you a great marriage where you and your spouse never argue, my friend, I have some oceanfront property in Dawsonville, Georgia that I'd love to sell you at a discount price. That's not the way faithfulness to God works. Faithfulness will not remove your struggle. 
Faithfulness will help you in the struggle. In fact, there are times when faithfulness will actually result in a struggle. You know, we look at Job's a story, and sometimes we say this, Job was such a moral and holy and godly man, but in spite of his godliness, these things happen. I think we're wrong in that statement. What we should say is this, Job was holy and moral and godly, and because of his godliness, these things happened to him. Faithfulness will not remove your struggles, it'll help you in the struggles, and sometimes faithfulness will result in you having struggles. Don't ask me why. Those are questions I can't answer. I'm just looking at the way things are. One final conclusion that I'd like to make for you that's connected with the third one is this. Struggles have a way of refining what we believe. What I'm saying to you is that struggles in life have a way of refining what we believe and how our faith is formed. Uh, let me give you an example from the book of Job. I already told you what Job believed about faithfulness and blessing, the relationship between faithfulness and blessing, up to this story. As you read, if you read the book of Job from chapter 3 all the way through, I think, chapter 38, 39, he has a debate with three, at first three and later four, a fourth of his, of his friends. And the debate totally centered around this belief that they had. It was the same belief Job used to have until crisis struck his life. And in the crisis, Job realized that the belief that he had held to so staunchly before the crisis was not true at all. What was the belief? It was the belief that if you follow God, only good things will happen to you. And if you don't follow God, only bad things will happen to you. Now, let me not throw away the baby with the bathwater. If you follow God, there will be times when good things happen. If you don't follow God, there will still be times when good things will happen. You and I don't even have to think two minutes, if that long, to think of somebody whose life is an absolute wreck, but it seems like God has made them multimillionaires, given them tons of friends, given them tons of authority and respect. And you sit back and you wonder, you know, hey, I saw this lady who has lived for God all of her life die of cancer. How can this sorry, rotten, rotten scoundrel still be alive? And it seems like God blesses them so much. Well, it's because faithfulness in life don't just fit into these neat little boxes that we wish they fitted into. Crisis will refine what you believe. Crisis will refine what you believe about God. It'll refine what you believe about life. It'll refine what you believe about church. It'll refine what you believe about faithfulness. But that's one of the prime purposes of struggles and crises in life. Yesterday, I drove up to Cumming, Georgia to speak at a funeral. It was the funeral of one of the deacons that I had when I was at Concord Church. His name was John Gravett. John was a very quiet man. He spoke with a, speak a speech impediment. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why he was so quiet. But his personality was just quietness. 
I don't know how many deacons meetings I had been to on a monthly basis at Concord Church, and, and, and we would be discussing something, and everybody would give their opinion, and then at the last, John, after digesting everything everybody said, he might say something, or he might not, but if he did say something, it was always seasoned with wisdom and a desire for unity. And he had a very progressive way of thinking. He wanted to do some out-of-the-box things to help the church to grow. In fact, there were a lot of people in that church at that time who, who weren't quite ready for the forward thinking that John Gravett possessed. I remember when their deacons came to talk with me in 1987 about being their pastor. John was the vice chairman of that deacon body. And he was with them in our living room in a basement home that we lived in off of Post Road in Forsyth County. John didn't say much in that meeting. I don't remember anything that he said except for voicing support. Later on, when they had their business meeting to call a pastor, uh, a business meeting in which the deacons didn't expect any controversy, any problems, whoo, they got up to nominate me and somebody else got up and nominated somebody else. You talk about tension that you could cut like cold freezing butter. The tension was thick and hard. The vote turned out to be a split vote. I got the vote, but it was split, and it wasn't good. As a result of that, the chairman of the deacon body resigned. He was angry. He was frustrated and just got up abruptly and says, I resigned my post as chairman of the deacon body. So late that night at 10 o'clock, instead of the chairman of the deacon body calling me, it was John Gravett, the vice chairman. Jimmy, he said, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? I said, well, let's go with the good news first, John. He said, well, the good news is you were elected our pastor tonight. I said, okay, what's the bad news? He said, somebody else was nominated too and there was a split vote. When he told me what the percentage was, my response was, oh, John, you've got to be kidding me. There was a pause, and John said, I apologize for it, Jimmy. We didn't expect it, and I am so sorry I can't apologize enough. He said, and you, have, you would be justified by most anybody not to come to our church in light of what has happened. But he said, I, I ask you to come. Well, I did go. At that church, they had Sunday morning, Sunday school, and worship. They had Sunday night. John Gravett was always there. On Tuesday night, they had visitation. Usually about three or four people would go on visitation. That's about average for a Baptist church, unfortunately. People believe in visitation as long as they don't have to go. Sometimes there were only two people who showed up for visitation. One of them would always be John Gravett. We had a Thursday night Bible study that ranged anywhere from having 80 to 120 people attend every Thursday night for 13 years. And every Thursday night, John Gravett was there with his sister, Lou, and his other sister, Othella, and his mother. Every Thursday night. And whenever I left that church in 1998, John Gravett was one of the, one of the main people who stood up on our behalf, and supported us. I can envision that God having a conversation with Satan would have said, by the way, Satan, you've been in the earth, you've seen people. Have you considered my servant, John Gravett? There's nobody like him in his faithfulness. 
But what if God was having a conversation with Satan today? And the subject of faithfulness came up. Would he mention your name? I hope he would. I hope he would. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of people like Job. I have to confess, Lord, I don't know if you'd find me faithful in the midst of all the tragedies that befell Job. But I certainly would hope that if a conversation between you and Satan struck up this afternoon, that you'd be able to call the names of folks who are here because of their faithfulness to you. A quiet, humble faithfulness. Lord, as we get ready to sing, there are some people in this congregation who need to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. They need to come to this altar and say, I want to invite Christ into my life. I've never done it. And I know that it's important that I receive Christ as my Savior. Lord, there are other people who've already received Christ. And the decision they need to make may be to join the church. Or it may be just to kneel in prayer over some concern that's on their heart. Lord, maybe some of us need to think about our faithfulness. And where we measure on a scale of 1 to 10 how faithful we are. And maybe we have found ourselves rating ourselves about a 3 or 4, maybe a 5. And we realize that we need to do something about that. And a visible commitment to you is the place to start. God, move in this place. Touch hearts. And please, Lord, soften us to the point where we will allow you to change us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.